Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Eastern European Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Marina, and today I'm pleased to be talking to Dr. Jill Massino about her book Ambiguous Transitions, Gender, the State and Everyday Life in Socialist and Post-Socialist Romania. When reading Dr. Massino's latest book, I certainly appreciated um, the sensitive, gendered approach of the author and the nuanced picture of everyday life in socialist and post-socialist Romania, that emerges as a result of her work. But before we greet the author, um, I thought I'd like um, to briefly summarize the chapter's content for our listeners' convenience. In the introduction, the author makes a convincing case for the voices of ordinary people to be included in the writing of the history of this period. Um, Some of them are appreciative of the socialist rule and its achievement. The first chapter neatly frames the historical context of the subsequent chapters by looking into the work of uh, charitable and then socialist state women's organizations and um, their conceptualization of womanhood, uh, which around the beginning of the 20th century moved beyond the complementary model uh, in which women were envisaged merely as wives and mothers to include more liberal ideas about women's liberation through economic independence and legal and political rights. The second chapter explores the state's educational practices aimed at shaping Romania's youth into exemplary socialist citizens. The third chapter looks into the state's policies promoting the inclusion of women into the labor force. Mere propaganda according to some, but um, a source of self-fulfillment and upward mobility for others. The fourth chapter delves into the persisting patriarchal attitudes which Romanian socialism was not particularly successful in transforming because its policies sometimes failed to lighten women's domestic burden and because men were not always on board for the reformulations of women's roles in the family and um, at the workplace. The fifth chapter discusses parenting and reproductive politics Um, paying special attention to the restrictive law criminalizing abortion that was introduced in 1966 and its effects. Chapter 6 delves into the material basis of everyday life, outlining the the periods of austerities after uh, World War II and in the 1980s, and the greater product availability in the 1960s and 1970s. The seventh and final chapter closes the book with the discussion of the opportunities and vulnerabilities which the demise of socialism brought for ordinary Romanians. Now let's greet Dr. Massino and learn more about her research. Hello Dr. Massino and welcome to New Books Network. Could you introduce yourself and your research? Hi, Marina. Thank you so much for having me on the program. So I'm an associate professor of European history at UNC Charlotte, where I teach courses on modern European and comparative history. 
And my research focuses on gender, citizenship, and everyday life in socialist and post-socialist Romania. And currently, I'm working on a project that explores Romania's engagement with countries in the global south during the Cold War. Oh, great. Um, I was about to ask you what you will be doing next um, in the end, but you already told us. So how did you come uh, to write specifically this book? Yeah, so I grew up during the Cold War. And of course, I believe that the division of Europe into two camps would be a permanent fixture of my life, um, you know, for most, if not all of my life. So the, the fall of the Berlin Wall was really an extraordinary and transformative event for me. I visited uh, Czechoslovakia and the former East Germany in 1991. And then in 1995, I did a short internship in Prague. Uh, and after that, I visited parts of the Czech Republic and Hungary. Um, by the late 1990s, uh, when I finished my MA in Modern European and Gender History, and at that time, my focus was on Western Europe, I knew that uh, Eastern Europe was going to be my focus, the focus of my PhD. And I chose Romania because uh, I've been fascinated uh, with people's lives and everyday experiences under dictatorships. And honestly, because Romanian seemed uh, a lot easier than other East European languages, uh, particularly Polish. So I decided to spend uh, most of the year 2000 living in Bucharest. And when I was in Bucharest, I interned at the Museum of the Romanian Peasant, where I made a lot of friends. Uh, I also traveled around the country. And of course, I fell in love with the beautiful countryside. And, um, you know, as I said, I made a, a number of friends there. Um, but my experiences uh, of the country uh, and the people there were not exactly what I had expected. And so what I mean by this is, of course, I expected, you know, the decaying socialist factories and the crumbling infrastructure and uh, the crumbling apartment blocks. But there were also these stories uh, that I heard uh, from individuals uh, that I spoke with, and including my friends, um, about their lives under socialism. And these stories really challenged my preconceived notions. Uh, of course, as I said, I grew up during the Cold War. So I was really had uh, fed this hearty diet of anti-communism. Um, and we were taught, of course, that the USSR was the evil empire. So I really believe that opportunities for agency, um, let, let alone enjoyment, were limited under socialism. And my encounters and my conversations with Romanians fundamentally altered my perception, uh, as did, of course, my oral history interviews that I conducted a number of years later that became a basis for this book. Could you briefly summarize your sources for our listeners? Sure. Um, so I use a range of different sources, uh, both official and unofficial, and qualitative and quantitative. So first of all, in 2003, I interviewed about 50 individuals, uh, along with three sociology students. So I interviewed 50, uh, and they interviewed an additional 25. Um, and then in 2009 and in 2012, uh, both those years, I returned to Romania. And uh, during those periods, I interviewed another 40 individuals. And the interviews were mainly with women, but some men were also interviewed, uh, and they were born uh, roughly between uh, the early 1930s uh, and the late 1970s. Um, and the interviews were life histories, so they focused on a range of topics such as schooling and friendships and work, uh, family life, leisure, consumption, obviously austerity, and also uh, major events such as uh, war, the post-war period, the period of uh, communist consolidation, and then the period of liberalization in the 60s, obviously the revolution of 1989, uh, and then the post-socialist period. 
So these oral histories uh, are in large part the engine that drives the narrative. So of course I had to complement them with other sources. Uh, so I did research at the National Archives in Bucharest, and I focused primarily on documents in the archive of the Central Committee of the Romanian Communist Party. And for me, the most valuable documents there were letters individuals, uh, ordinary uh, Romanians, had written to the communist leadership. Um, and so there are a wide range of letters. Uh, so some of them were uh, laudatory letters uh, praising uh, Ceausescu for his initiatives and policies. Um, some were requests for larger apartments. Uh, some were uh, permit, uh, re asking permission to travel abroad. Uh, and some, uh, actually many, were letters of complaint. And you primarily see these in the, uh, from the mid-70s and through the 80s. There are many letters of complaint. Um, in addition to this, uh, uh, these sources, I also uh, consulted uh, Radio Free Europe uh, documents, so transcripts and letters, uh, uh, and a range of written and visual media sources uh, produced during the communist period. So uh, I looked at the Communist Daily, uh, the Communist Women's Magazine, uh, the Communist Youth Magazine, uh, along with film produced uh, during the period, um, as well as uh, after 1989, so film uh, that was produced, obviously, both during the socialist and post-socialist period. Uh, I also looked at works uh, produced by social scientists, so stuff that was written during the socialist period, uh, especially as they related to the themes I was focusing on. So youth, uh, work, uh, women, family life, love, marriage, uh, those types of things. And, of course, I also looked at uh, socialist policy and legislation as well as statistics. And then in addition to this, I draw on a range of secondary literature on modern Europe, on one-party states, be they fascist or socialist, uh, scholarship on everyday life under dictatorships, and uh, scholarship on gender in modern Europe uh, as well as the U.S. And I should underscore that I profited from a lot of the cutting-edge work by scholars of and mainly from Romania. So even though the book took longer than I wanted it to, um, I was able to, um, by delaying it in a way, uh, able to profit from all this uh, excellent scholarship. Wow, that, that sounds really like a lot of work. Um, so in your introduction, you have gone to great lengths to describe that you are not whitewashing the socialist regime, but just looking for a more nuanced representation of it that includes the everyday experiences of ordinary people as well. So did you envision backlash? Yeah, so um, I definitely envisioned a backlash while writing the book, and I must admit that I fully expect one. It's not occurred yet, but it's an expensive book, and it hasn't been translated into Romanian yet, so I guess we will see. But I'm happy you asked this question um, because I think it gets to a, a few important issues that historians of one-party states uh, and historians of repressive regimes in general wrestle with. Uh, namely, how does one write about everyday life under a repressive regime where certain groups and individuals experienced immense suffering? And so what are the stakes involved in this process? And how do you do it in a way that doesn't obscure uh, or minimize uh, that suffering? So I think the first thing to think about to acknowledge is that um, most Romanians suffered at some point in their everyday lives under socialism, uh, be it during the earlier periods, during it, be it during the 1980s uh, when uh, they had no heat or hot water or they couldn't secure enough food to make a nutritious meal. 
Uh, they suffered at school, especially in the early years uh, of socialist rule, if they had unhealthy social origins. Um, they suffered in cases they belonged to a minority group. Uh, and so I think we have to acknowledge this reality that uh, in people's everyday lives, uh, they suffered. And we need to look outside of, for example, prisons, jails, and work camps. And um, if we look at gender, uh, of course, we know that women of childbearing age suffered uh, both psychologically and physically uh, when seeking to end an unwanted pregnancy, particularly when abortion was illegal, which was for the majority of uh, socialist rule, with the exception of a nine, 10 year period. So suffering was uh, a part of people's everyday lives during various periods of socialist rule. Um, and uh, as I said, it didn't happen just in prisons and labor camps. The other issue is how do you balance uh, the fear in humanity and brutality some people experienced with the joy, sense of accomplishment, or perhaps even just contentedness uh, that other people did. So first of all, um, you know, the fact that people continued to go to the Black Sea and sun themselves and party with friends and family and, you know, go to the theater and watch a Fellini film obviously does not uh, negate or even minimize the reality that many faced uh, repression and brutality. So these various portraits can coexist, and in my mind, they should coexist um, in, in an historical account of the period. People could, and they did, experience both joy and fear. They experienced repression, and at certain periods, a sense of liberation. Or if you look at the example of work, you know, it might have been tedious or taxing or unfulfilling. But at, on the other hand, people taking trips to the seaside or the mountains, uh, they found those experiences invigorating uh, and relaxing. So the, for me, the important thing about everyday life history is that by making it a central component of the story, it provides a fuller portrait of uh, that history of the politics, of the economic system, of the society that you're focusing on. And it allows us to see how people were both affected by and responded to state policies. I also think it helps us highlight life's complexities. So regimes, uh, societies, and individuals are complex. They're messy. Uh, they're full of ambiguities and contradictions. And if this is the case, then history, of course, should illuminate them not obscure them. So another major issue or question is, what does it mean to write an everyday life history as an outsider? So as someone who is not from the region and did not personally experience the period that they are writing about. So this was continuously at the fore of my mind while working on the book. And it's why the oral histories uh, were fundamental to the narrative. They're so important to it. But also, of course, the book could not have been written without the support and feedback from many colleagues, um, especially from the region. Um, and so from the earliest stages of the project, when I was a PhD student, uh, my advisor, Maria Bukur, and the feminist philosopher, Mihaila Miroyu, um, provided me with uh, sources and uh, insights and excellent feedback on my work. Um, in addition, a number of other Romanian scholars uh, read the manuscript and provided me suggestions and helpful feedback, uh, as did colleagues working on Europe and socialism and gender. Uh, beyond all this, of course, there's the argument that outsiders bring in different perspectives, they ask different questions, uh, not to mention, of course, that without outsiders, uh, many histories simply could not be written. 
Right. And I do subscribe to the nuanced representation um, that you try to achieve and also to the idea that um, outside um, scholars from the outside can bring different perspectives and comparisons. And related to this is my next question, because you do make some comparisons with North American everyday life and values and state policies of the same time. Uh, so, for example, you point out that while Romanian um, media encouraged women to join the workforce, um, American magazines and newspapers from the same time, um, this means the 1950s and 1960s, construed women primarily as mothers and homemakers. And another example, which is in the second chapter, is that uh, unlike Romanian girls in the 1970s, their female counterparts in the West did not receive any encouragement to study sciences. So. What did you aim with these comparisons? Uh, how do they advance your argument? Yeah, so it was really important to place the analysis in a, a comparative frame. So throughout the book, I make comparisons with other East European countries, uh, as well as countries in Western Europe and the U.S. And uh, with respect to the U.S. in particular, what I wanted to compare was the type of womanhood being promoted there versus the type of womanhood being promoted in Romania and explain why this mattered, both in terms of state legitimacy, but also women's lived experiences. And so, like countries in Western Europe, in the immediate post-war period in the U.S., the aim was to return to normalcy, which meant restoring uh, the pre-war gender order, among other things. And of course, this was necessary to accommodate returning veterans, but also to showcase uh, the U.S.'s comparative wealth, uh, the notion that women did not need to work because their husbands served as the sole breadwinner. We know this is an idealized portrait and that many women in the U.S. Uh, did continue to work, uh, that the sole breadwinner model was not feasible. But at the same time, we also know this idealized version of the American woman and the American lifestyle more generally had a lot of ideological currency at the time. Again, sending this message uh, of, of comparative affluence uh, that women didn't need to work in the U.S. because, uh, uh, again, the U.S. was a wealthy country, um, which they contrasted with the USSR, uh, where women were uh, basically forced to work, according to the narrative, uh, forced to work like men and, in fact, be kind of masculine-like. So gender was... Part of the Cold War struggle uh, in both Western and East European countries and, um, and, and in both sides claimed that their treatment of women was reflected of, of their humanity, but also the, the, the superiority of their system. Uh, Romania, like the USSR, granted women full equality in all spheres of life. Um, so they promoted women's mass participation in the labor force, which was necessary, of course, for rebuilding and modernizing and industrializing the country. But it also has to be noted that it was um, an ideological necessity since, according to socialist theorists, uh, women's liberation uh, was based upon their full and equal employment. Um, and so women had to be economically autonomous uh, in addition to enjoying full civil and legal rights um, to be fully liberated under socialism. It's important to acknowledge that in practice, work was not liberating for all or even many women uh, in Romania and other parts of the bloc. 
but it certainly did change the course of their lives. And in some cases, it did so in positive ways. And I take this, of course, from, I draw this conclusion from the interviews that I conducted with uh, over 100 women, uh, many of whom were born in rural areas. Um, And for them, working outside the home meant that they had increased choice, right? They had... Mm -hmm. uh, opportunities they wouldn't uh, that their 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 mothers or grandmothers would not have had um they enjoyed a level of personal fulfillment that their grandmothers and mothers did not they had access to different leisure uh pursuits because they uh, many of them moved to cities um and 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 opportunities to develop new friendships and it should also be recalled that work was validated by the state so this was not the same case in the West. And here I'm talking about in particular working in heavy industry, working in engineering, nuclear energy, uh, and the like. And so what I was especially struck by was how many women worked in STEM fields during the socialist period. And also the fact that girls were encouraged in these areas uh, already when they were in high school. And so if you compare this with STEM in the US, which is actually still dominated by men, the promotion of women in these fields uh, in Romania uh, during the socialist uh, period is, is highly progressive. And so this is why this comparative frame is so important. Yes, I think I understand. Um, other authors like um, Dr. Christine uh, Gotzi had a similar, similar argument. Uh, and it is interesting to see uh, how this backward regions that we have, like in Eastern Europe, have had uh, sometimes more progressive policies um, for women? Definitely these, uh, I think we should acknowledge uh, that these were progressive policies and um, they were very fulfilling for for some of the women who were able to take up these jobs. But we need to keep in mind that uh, state promotion of women in the labor force was not necessarily rooted in genuine commitment to women's equality and economic autonomy. So we need to kind of balance uh, that against uh, the the pragmatic reality to employ as many individuals as possible. But I think regardless, uh, the overall message was that women could participate pretty much uh, on an equal footing with men in building a modern society. And again, this was particularly impressive uh, given that many of the women uh, who were trained in these areas often grew up in rural areas. So the level of mobility experienced by such women um, was not exceptional, uh, but it was experienced by uh, large segments of the population. And so this needs to be seen as a real achievement of the socialist project. I want to add one more thing. Uh, we need to keep in mind also that even though women were um, acknowledged in legislation as equals and um, uh, they could enter into various fields, uh, they did not generally earn the same as men. So uh, if you look at their wages comparatively, women earn less. If you look at their representation and leadership positions, um, they were underrepresented, particularly uh, in obviously places like heavy industry, but also in politics. Um, and even in female-dominated uh, areas like textiles, uh, women uh, were under- underrepresented in leadership positions. Also, they continued to face harassment and discrimination um, in the labor force, especially in male-dominated fields, so where they worked in a team that was predominantly uh, composed of men. 
They were also, women were also the ones who dealt with the constant challenge of balancing work and family. Uh, so this is, these, these burdens fell disproportionately on women. And of course, uh, many worked long hours uh, and some felt that this, these multiple burdens, um, you know, that, that life was particularly difficult and they did suffer. So I just want to acknowledge I'm not trying to paint this rosy picture of the women uh, of women in the labor force as you know we might see in uh, socialist murals uh, that that dot uh, Romania and other uh, post-socialist countries, but I want to present uh, a complex one. Yes, I, I understand that it is really much more complex. It's not one or the other, and it's not black and white. Um, and maybe this is why some of your respondents used the expression formal equality um, to evaluate whether gender equality was achieved or not under the socialist regime. Could you maybe dwell a little bit on that expression and discuss what uh, would make a difference for the women who labeled their experience uh, with formal equalities? So I really would like to, to know more about that. Sure. So formal equality refers to uh, what one might see in legislation uh, or in the constitution and in policy. And uh, I the, my respondents use that term to emphasize the disconnect between equality on paper um, and uh, you could argue the inequality that they experienced in practice. So while legally women could assume almost all jobs in Romania, uh, in reality, they did not. And of course, as I already noted, they were underrepresented in leadership positions, uh, especially political leadership, uh, of course, until a quota system was set up. Um, and it also refers to the fact that women were not treated as equals by their employers. So I'm talking here about their male co-workers and uh, other men uh, and even their husbands, right? So this notion of formal equality applied not just to the public sphere, the workplace, but also to the private sphere. And we know, of course, that patriarchal attitudes and behaviors continued throughout the socialist period. One of the most challenging things to transform are attitudes and behaviors and uh, a state, nor uh, neither a state nor an ideology uh, can transform them overnight, or maybe even in 40 years. Uh, so these, um, this notion of formal equality was something uh, that that respondents felt was, you know, rather token, but not really reflective of what they experienced on the ground. In chapter two, in which you explore the state's educational practices, you talk about social engineering. Um, could you summarize for our readers the most important social engineering methods which the state employed in order to create the almost no uh, or the new person? And I quote from your from your book here for definition uh, of it: um, a conscientious and loyal citizen committed to social transformation and uncorrupted by anti-socialist elements. Um, what were the values which the socialist state wanted to inculcate in its citizens? What uh, what were the values that were uh, that the state was were, was fighting uh, against that were considered bourgeois or reactionary? Could you talk about that? Yeah, sure. So, um, of course, this notion of a new man is nothing new. Uh, the Italian futurists used it. The Bolsheviks used it. It was used uh, by the Romanian fascist movement, the Iron Guard during the interwar period. But uh, in any case, as you know, it's about uh, social engineering. So basically molding individuals according to 
a particular ideology, belief system, um, and for a new political, economic, and social order. So this new man was produced uh, by uh, and also helped to produce or build the new system. So they were a product, but they were also uh, involved in the, the, the production uh, of this new man um, and in this new system, of course. And schooling was naturally essential to this process, uh, as was propaganda and uh, a host of organizations, leisure organizations, the children's organization, the pioneer movement, women's organizations. So the collective worked together uh, alongside the state to help fashion the new person. And in socialist Romania, the new person embodied, of course, socialist principles, but also nationalist principles, because we know that socialism in Romania was highly nationalistic. So the new person um, was literate, was rational. They believed in progress and science. Um, They were studious, right? So they got good marks in school, diligent and punctual worker. They enjoyed working, took great pride in, 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 in their work. Um, And that would include also voluntary work, so work for the community, cleaning up the neighborhood, or even harvesting, um, you know, potatoes and, um, uh, you know, vegetables during the autumn. Um, The new man uh, was, or the new person uh, was, you know, self-aware and self-reflective. So uh, thinking about how they might be able to improve themselves, right? They were also cultured, uh, so they attended the theater and uh, the symphony. They were healthy. They ate well. Ate well. Um, they were fit. They enjoyed the outdoors, fresh air, um, optimistic and forward-looking. So, right, oriented towards this radiant future that socialist uh, theorist had envisaged. Um, and of course, as I noted, nationalism was important to this component. So they were patriotic, and they were always, you know, professing this love of their country. And the new man also sacrificed uh, for the common good. So loyal to the party and the state, but also to fellow individuals, right? So committed to these, these values and to, uh, you know, instilling within other individuals these values. Um, but also promoting kind of more universal values such as peace and social justice uh, throughout the world. So not just in Romania, but throughout the world. Um, so as I discussed in chapter one, however, uh, this idea of omul no, um, it, it, it meant different things uh, if you're a woman. So you had additional responsibilities. Uh, so this meant being a good mother, being a good wife, right, a good partner, uh, rearing your child according to socialist values, values uh, but also being fruitful. So that is producing many children, uh, particularly uh, after uh, the recriminalization of abortion in 1966. And uh, for a girl or a young woman, it meant being virtuous uh, or chaste, right? So there's no premarital sex uh, and for women. Um, And of course, this dovetailed quite well with prevailing religious and familial views about girls and sexuality. Uh, And certainly there was a double standard there. Um, I should also Mm -hmm. note that the new man was heterosexual, right? And we see this actually codified uh, in 1968 with the criminalization of homosexuality. So it criminalized uh, homosexual behaviors, but also even discussions about that would be um, advocating tolerance of homosexual behaviors. And again, this dovetails quite well with the religious and conservative views of the time. Um, And so the new man or the new person, um, even though Uh, We may associate uh, this individual with modernity and progress and as someone who is forward-looking, 
there were also these conservative elements. And um, I think this is important to keep in mind because it highlights, um, you know, some of the contradictions in the socialist project in Romania, the ambiguities, but also more generally uh, the ambiguities and contradictions of, of modernity, right? Um, so I'm just going to discuss real briefly what it meant to be uh, the antithesis of this new man, right? So if you embraced bourgeois values, uh, obviously you believed in the previous system, right? So you were capitalist, mm -hmm. uh, you believed in status and a class system, um, and you accepted or even took part in the exploitation of others. Um, you were status-oriented in how you lived your lifestyle, right? So you advertised uh, the status within reason. And certainly you uh, also were somewhat patriarchal in your values. Now, I'm not saying all members of the bourgeois class were like this. I'm saying this is how socialists defined them, right? So right. That, that members of the bourgeois order would not have viewed women as full equals and thus, you know, not, uh, they, they should not be active in the labor force. They should maybe not even, uh, you know, participate in the polity, right? In the political uh, making process. And uh, this was really interesting how this was mobilized because um, anyone who displayed these kind of outmoded or patriarchal values was presented by socialist propagandists as barbaric. So particularly if you're abusive, physically abusive uh, to your wife. So how you treated a woman uh, in the workplace, right, your colleague or, or your wife was really an indicator of how progressive you were um, and to what degree you really were, you know, a socialist new man. And I'll just note real quick about a reactionary individual. So uh, this would obviously be someone who uh, embraced, you know, right-wing tendencies politically, was fascist, um, and also probably intolerant towards minorities. Um, and then one thing, uh, one additional thing I wanted to note is that um, more generally, the antithesis of the new man would be someone who was, uh, you know, a social parasite. So someone who was work shy, you know, didn't go to work or called in sick a lot, was lazy, uh, an alcoholic, you know, might be an example of somebody who was antithetical to the new man or a promiscuous woman. So a host of characteristics and behaviors and identities can be associated with this. So in chapter three, uh, again, you talk about um, the self-made woman. Uh, which was portrayed in Ro Romania's socialist media. Um, what was the role of um, the party in these stories? And why do you um, call them self-made women? Um, and could you tell us more about those stories in Romania's socialist media? Sure. So the self-made woman uh, in the in Romania was like the self-made man or self-made person in the U.S. So they were this person of modest origins who made it, right? They achieved professional success. And in the case of Romania, the self-made woman uh, was a product of socialist policy and propaganda, but also ambition and drive and commitment to the socialist project, socialist values. Um, in contrast, in America, uh, the self-made man or person was a product of liberal democracy and capitalism. So if you compare the two, under socialism, it's the state and the party that's the catalyst for success. Um, in the U.S., it's the free market. But um, in both cases, um, they were presented as models, right? So the self-made man, just like uh, the self-made woman uh, in, in Romania, 
um, was a model for others to aspire to. And uh, as such, she was an inspirational figure, but she wasn't exceptional. The idea being that anyone through hard work, right, ambition, um, determination could achieve this. But of course, they, at the end of the day, she was indebted to the state for offering her these possibilities that would not have been offered to her under the previous regime, under a capitalist uh, regime. Also, um, I should stress that both were symbols of modernity and progress, but of course, in different ways, right? So uh, I think, you know, there are many uh, comparisons we can make between the two, but this is why I chose this term, uh, because it, it's similar in many ways, but it, it just uh, plays out differently. And it has uh, a different type of ideological significance. I see. And um, a slightly off topic, um, fun note, maybe. It is um, that you mention Kyus in chapter four as sites of socialization where friends and neighbors joked and shared stories. Um, could you tell us more about that? This is in the context of a chapter where, um, in general, you talk about um, the remaining patriarchal structures and um, the roles in the family. So um, in this particular context, uh, you talk about how sometimes men would go to the to, to wait on the queues. Um, so it is really a, a little bit uh, off topic maybe, but I really was struck by, by this idea that this could be a place of socialization. And I was wondering whether your research participants talk about cues in such a positive tone. Yeah, thank you. I don't, I don't think it's off topic. And I think it, it relates back to what I said earlier, in terms of this period being uh, experienced in a complex manner, and um, certain practices assuming uh, complex and maybe even seemingly contradictory uh, meanings. But uh, this notion of the cues being sites of socialization uh, or places for socializing were, uh, was mentioned by my respondents who queued up, uh, particularly those who were younger when they queued up, so maybe children, teens, um, and also some of the men I interviewed. And it was also referenced in other sources. And um, if you look at photos of cues, you see this as well. So, of course, some of the photos present this bleak portrait of people waiting in the bitter cold. Um, you know, it's snowing uh, and they might be outside a butcher and, you know, they're going to come out with some scrawny chicken legs. But there are also <laughs> uh, photographs of people who uh, have brought their chairs and, and there's, you know, they put them in front of a, of a shop and they're chatting away. And it's clearly warmer. You can tell by how they're dressed. Um, but in those cases, you can see that happening. And I think beyond those images, though, if you think about the time involved in queuing, um, it's only natural that people would socialize, um, especially if you went with a neighbor or a friend. Um, and so, you know, you'd gossip, you'd tell jokes, uh, you'd complain or grouse about the regime. You'd have to be careful in doing that. Um, but what else was there really to do in such circumstances? Um, so it was a mean of, means of passing the time and kind of staving off boredom. Of course, you know, you also might be smoking cigarettes. Most likely you were. 
Uh, that said, I think it's important to acknowledge, of course, that queues could also be uh, sites of aggression where people are trying to struggle to get to the front, uh, especially if it was a highly coveted uh, good that uh, they might not have an opportunity to acquire in the near future. And many people complained about this. Uh, they complained about naturally having to queue up early in the morning and uh, especially in winter. They complained about people skipping. Uh, the queue, uh, and also the fact that uh, privileged individuals could go to the head of the queue. And so I think we have to keep in mind uh, that uh, there were a lot of different types of behaviors on display in the queues. But um, of course, as I said, they could be sites of socialization. So That's interesting. Uh, I feel that the queues and uh, lots of things that you describe in your book are a way of structuring um, the time of uh, citizens. Um, so I do feel that it is important to describe those things. Um, and now I'll, I'll, I'll go in a bleaker uh, question about the abortion ban that you mentioned previously. Uh, so in Chapter 5, which is about parenting and the state's pronatalist stance, um, you also talk about the criminalization of abortion. Um, maybe uh, you could summarize for our listeners um, the effects that the decree um, had on women. Um, I, I mean, in terms of their psychological and physical health, um, their sexuality, parenting relationships with their husbands. And I would like to also emphasize here that the abortion ban, from what I understood from reading your book, was accompanied by difficulties procuring contraception, short maternity leaves, a shortage of childcare facilities, and a lot of other conditions which made raising a child a very hard task in, in socialist Romania. Yeah, so uh, Decree 770, which was passed in October of 1966, recriminalized abortion after it had been legal on demand for about a decade. Um, and the legislation surrounding it became more and more draconian over the course of socialist rule. Um, there's been, of course, a lot written about it. And so I'm not going to get into details about the decree itself. But um, my concern in this chapter was focusing on the psychological and physical toll it took on women and their families. And we need to, of course, acknowledge the fact that this is not dissimilar from what women experience in other countries where abortion is illegal, where it's been criminalized. So sexual intercourse is often accompanied by fear of pregnancy. Um, then, of course, how women respond to an unwanted pregnancy. And, you know, what methods do they use uh, to either uh, self-induce um, or to find a solution to their problem, right? So uh, in the case of Romania, uh, you know, women might lift heavy items such as furniture or jump from, jump from high heights or ingest herbal infusions or uh, drink chemicals, uh, insert either herbal or chemical substances or sharp objects, uh, including knitting needles or probes into their vaginas, taking, they might take incredibly hot baths. So uh, they resorted to a lot of measures, desperate measures. But of course, again, this needs to be acknowledged is that this 
um, is not unique to the Romanian case and uh, happens in other places where uh, abortion is criminalized. Of course, there was the option of uh, clandestine abortion with a midwife, doctor, or even uh, a non-medical professional, uh, which was uh, risky uh, in part because uh, in certain cases, uh, they did not have the anesthesia that was necessary for uh, performing the abortion. So women endured a great deal of pain. Uh, in terms, of course, the, of the non-medical professionals performing them, they often did not know what they were doing. And uh, the cost was the woman's life. And um, beyond that, of course, were um, all the ways in which uh, these individuals, um, and this didn't always happen, but in certain cases, it certainly did basically took advantage of women's desperation um, and did so by extorting money or other favors from them. And we see this happen in uh, the movie, Four Months, Three Weeks, and Two Days. Um, I'm going to address your question about uh, contraceptives now, because I think that's important as well. So, of course, uh, as you noted, uh, contraception was not illegal in Romania, uh, actually until the 1980s. Um, but it was very difficult to uh, get a hold of, uh, of contraception. Um, so one could get birth control pills uh, through contacts abroad, uh, or through uh, cross border trading. So you know, if you were able to trade with uh, across the Hungarian or Yugoslav borders, uh, you could access uh, contraceptives. Um, primarily birth control pills. Um, you could get them on the black market as well. Uh, but of course, you needed the money to do this and you needed contacts. Um, you could get them through foreigners. Um, if you had connections or you knew someone uh, who traveled outside of the country, um, you know, if you knew a pilot perhaps or uh, a flight attendant, um, if you were a member of the privileged elite, uh, of course, you also could access contraceptives. So it needs to be kept in mind, of course, that this law disproportionately affected individuals of modest means uh, who did not have these types of connections. If you had a trustworthy doctor and the money, you could get sterilized. But only one of the women I interviewed was able to do this, had this procedure. In terms of parents, uh, the type of burden it placed on them, well, obviously, one could not control the size of their families. Or if they sought to, they took, the woman took great risk in doing so. Um, but the issue of family size really becomes uh, a major concern during the austerity of the late uh, 70s and especially in the 80s when people are spending increasingly more of their wages on food and basic goods. Uh, when securing formula, so infant formula was very difficult. Uh, and this, you know, it needs to be kept in mind that formula was necessary because women typically returned to work after a few months. So they had a short maternity leave and they went back to work. There were certainly no breast pumps uh, in the country. So formula, sure. infant formula was a necessity. And then I just want to add one more thing about the 80s and, and the challenges. Uh, just if you think about how difficult it was to bathe infants during that period uh, without having hot water, right, continuously available. Uh, having electricity available, having only uh, heat at certain times of the day. There were also not enough childcare facilities or spots at childcare facilities. So um, there were a host of problems created uh, as a result of 
of the recriminalization of abortion. And it wasn't just, um, you know, obviously the, the clear physical dangers uh, that women faced. So women had short maternity leaves. There was no paternity leave. Uh, and even though the state subsidized uh, child care facilities, it did not provide enough, uh, enough of them. Um, so could you um, say what were the different strategies parents employed in order to be able to take care of their children? Sure. So um, there was no family leave, as you know. So that was another flaw in the policy in that it undermined this notion of gender equality in all spheres of life uh, because this leave was decidedly gendered, right? Um, of course, the state was supposed to obviate the need for caring for children in the home in the first place by providing adequate and ideally high-quality childcare, but we know that it cut corners and industrialization was privileged over welfare entitlements. Um, In any case, so many women returned to work after the maternity leave ran out, so typically three months or so after they had given birth, and they needed to find uh, some form of childcare. And there were crushes, uh, but as I noted, there were not enough places for all children. And in addition to this, you know, mothers were worried. They were, they tended to be overcrowded and they didn't, they were concerned that their children would not receive the adequate care that they needed, right? That they might fall ill because of the overcrowding. Um, And so they were reticent to leave their children there. So they opted uh, often to leave their child with a relative, uh, particularly a parent. So the the child's grandparents. Um, But this was problematic because uh, many people had moved, uh, out of their hometown. So they'd moved to cities or industrial towns and, you know, their parents were in the countryside. Um, and sometimes they could be a considerable distance away. So in such cases, it meant that, you know, they would leave their children with uh, their parents and they might see them only on weekends or even less frequently. So it would depend on, you know, the work demands, but also the distance that they had to travel. And, you know, this was really difficult uh, for mothers and for parents, but also for the children, right, who were left with their grandparents, although, you know, they enjoyed their time with their grandparents. But, you know, it it disrupted that bond that is created, uh, you know, within that first year between parents and, 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 and their child. Of course, on the flip side, it meant that children could really bond with their grandparents, right? And they're in the countryside, they could, they could enjoy the, you know, the, the fresh air, you know, if they were in the mountains, you know, they could go hiking. Um, maybe they were tending for, to, to animals, uh, tending to the harvest, those types of things. So they could really have quite a fulfilling uh, experience. Um, and, you know, a lot of my respondents had fond memories of growing up this way, of being reared um, by their grandparents. Uh, but of course, you know, they would miss their parents. And um, it wasn't really the children uh, who had been with their grandparents who noted this, but the parents who recalled leaving their children with their grandparents who talked about how emotionally taxing this was, right? How it was mm-hmm. so difficult, you know, after a weekend visit to leave them behind, um, you know, and the child would start crying and all this. Um, and both women and men that I interviewed talked about this. Um, so they might stay there until, you know, age four or five when then the children or the child could start kindergarten. Um, parents also could hire a nanny. In Romanian, this is known as a tanti. And, uh, you know, they would just come in and look after the child. Uh, Or if there were no other options, uh, a neighbor might come in and and look after the child. Um, But you can see, of course, how difficult this is if you if you had one child or even two. But if you imagine having three or four, I mean, it just it becomes impossible. I should note that one 
respondent uh, who worked in a research institute said that she was actually able to bring uh, her infant in with her to work. Um, and I think this was an exceptional case, though. No one else uh, noted that. So in Chapter 6, you use the term remunerative legitimacy to refer to the consumer liberalization era, or in other words, the, um, the white access to all type of consumer goods. Um, could you elaborate on this period, people's perception of it, and um, the state's ultimate goal? Sure. So this is uh, the notion that the state seeks legitimacy through provision of things that people want and need. And uh, Cornell Bond uses this term uh, in reference to the upward mobility that various groups experienced under Ceausescu. Uh, and he you know, is highlighting here uh, professional opportunities, educational opportunities, which in, terms, uh, in turn obviously provided individuals with a higher standard of living. And so these uh, remunerative strategies uh, employed by the state included a wide range of economic and social rights. So this can include guaranteed work, and subsidized housing, subsidized travel. Uh, as I use the term, it also applies to consumer goods and a host of cultural activities. Um, and so, uh, of course, the ability to purchase an apartment cheaply or secure a scholarship. But the point with these strategies is that it uh, made it seem, and actually people experienced this, that, that, that the state was actually making good on its promise of a better life. And so maybe this was not the radiant future that had been envisaged or promised by socialist theorists, but it was an improved life. And people experienced this on an everyday level. Um, so it was just not an empty promise. And the period um, from the mid-60s to the mid-70s uh, or so was almost universally remembered fondly uh, by the individuals I interviewed. Um, this was uh, in large part uh, a result of the fact that Many of them, at the time, they were living in cities. So uh, I focused on two cities, uh, Brasov and Bucharest. And uh, these individuals had come from rural areas. And so when they came to these cities uh, for work, uh, they experienced a completely different uh, life, right? They had cultural opportunities and leisure opportunities that they would not have had available to them in the countryside. Uh, they made new friendships, obviously, at work. Um, but also it was due to their age at the time. So uh, most of my respondents were born in the mid-40s and 50s. So they were young during this period of liberalization uh, when many of these strategies were being employed. And uh, so we need to keep that in mind. And this is not to necessarily argue that uh, their uh, recollections are tinged by uh, you know, a large degree of nostalgia, but I think that that does play somewhat of a role. And of course, uh, it was a time of of, of hope uh, for many Romanians. Um, uh, Ceausescu was seen as kind of maverick, right? A progressive, um, especially after he condemned the Warsaw Pact invasion of Czechoslovakia in 1968. And we see this uh, as uh, communist membership increases uh, as a result of this. So I think those things uh, need to be kept in mind. And would you say that when the austerity measures came, um, the lack, the scarcity of everything had the legitimizing effect? Um, so, because in contrast to the period after the Second World War, which was also characterized by by poverty and austerity measures, in the 1980s, um, the Romanian people were not ready to accept this anymore to to justify the failure of the state to provide them with basic necessities such as food or electricity. 
Yeah. So, um, of course, both with respect to the post-war and latter periods of austerity, you're right. Uh, people were no longer willing to accept this, to tolerate it. Um, and of course, as I said, uh, this uh, second period of austerity was preceded by a period of consumer liberalization. So people's hopes and their standards of living had been raised for some time. And uh, scholars have demonstrated that when people experience this period of, of upward mobility and their standard of living increases, and that's followed by a sharp downturn, uh, particularly the rationing of goods, um, people become radicalized. And this is uh, what happened in, in Romania. And people were no longer willing to tolerate it. Of course, alongside this, you have corruption and repression, which really became hallmarks uh, of uh, late socialist rule uh, and were plain for everyone to see. So um, so was all inequality. So you, you, you have a situation in which high-ranking officials and members of the nomenklatura can uh, enjoy, you know, they're enjoying a host of privileges. They can purchase goods and often luxury items at special shops. Uh, why most of the population had to queue up for them or purchase them on the black market or secure them through connections. Um, and then you have all this waste, all this money being poured into heavy industry um, and in the construction of, you know, the gargantuan uh, Casa Popori. So that's the, the current site of the Romanian parliament in Bucharest. Uh, while, you know, most Romanians are experiencing penury. So, um, and you also see it just in this disconnect, right? So, you know, uh, in preparation for Ceausescu's tours of markets, um, you know, they would be stocked, right? And you'd have these, uh, you know, these stalls of overflowing fruits and vegetables. Uh, and then, of course, a photo of him would be taken in, uh, uh, at, these, at these markets and they'd appear in the newspaper the next day. And so this extraordinary gulf between what was officially represented um, and experienced on an everyday level, right? And, and, and this, this increased over the course of the 80s. And so uh, people were clearly not willing to tolerate, you know, living in, in a society that was characterized by austerity, corruption, repression, and, and based on lies. Um, during the immediate post-war period, of course, there was uh, corruption and repression. Um, but peace, people were also exhausted as a result of the war. Um, the country's infrastructure was in shambles. People's homes had been destroyed. Of course, many people died during the war. And then in the northeastern part of the country, um, there was this horrible drought in the immediate post-war period. Uh, and then a famine in which hundreds of thousands died. So the post-war uh, austerity was a function of a number of factors and not just simply this uh, result of budget tightening. Um, and of course, we should keep in mind that post-war austerity was evident throughout Europe, uh, various parts of the globe. So it wasn't just unique to Romania. So I was thinking about the idea of managing a term that emerges mostly in relation to the austerity measures and the product scarcity in the 1980s. And you write about this term in chapter six. Um, so could you talk more about these strategies of managing? Um, some of them fostered communality, others undermined it. And I found this really interesting. Yeah, so... Um, managing is a flexible term, and it can involve licit as well as illicit practices. And as I use it in the book, it involves employing certain strategies to deal with shortage or uncertainty, dysfunctionality. So a prime example would be, of course, to barter goods uh, for other goods or barter goods for services. 
So um, you might uh, pay a doctor or a teacher, you know, for their services uh, by way of food, cigarettes, alcohol. Um, it might also, uh, this form of managing might also involve buying products uh, on the black market, obviously, which was illegal, um, but that you could not get in stores or that you could not get in sufficient quantity uh, in stores. Um, so let's say you're planning a wedding or you have a huge holiday celebration and you need a certain amount of eggs, or butter, pork, whatever it might be. Um, with rationing, you're only going to get a designated designated amount. Uh, or if you go to the stores, there might not be enough available. So you're going to use your connections uh, and your contacts, right? You're going to, the connections might be with someone in the countryside, or it might be uh, through a coworker, but you're going to use these connections uh, to get what you need to get. Um, you're going to pay more, of course. Um, but that would be an example of managing. Another example would be to um, in exchange for having your maternity leave prolonged, which uh, a number of my respondents did. Um, and, and you could do this if you went to your doctor and you said your child was sick. Um, so, you know, you'd ask for an extension of maternity leave and the doctor could extend it for a number of months, maybe up to a year, maybe even longer. And, um, you know, the form of uh, remuneration might be cigarettes uh, or food or other goods. So, uh, this was an example of managing again. And related to this um, and to the, uh, this is rather related to the previous period, um, is this metaphor of safety valves, uh, which you use to describe uh, a range of things. Uh, for example, watching of Western films and listening to Western music. Um, I kind of like assume that this happened more in this um Um, consumer liberalization era, but I might be wrong here. So could you elaborate on your idea behind this metaphor and the particular practices that the regime deemed innocuous enough to turn a blind eye to? Okay, so a safety valve allows the release of pressure. Um, so the way I'm using it, uh, the state tolerates, and even in some cases supports certain behaviors or practices that might not be in line with socialist mores or values Uh, so that people can let off some steam, experience a bit of freedom, and basically enjoy life. And safety valves uh, are tools, um, and they are effective in, you know, in most cases, in many cases, staving off in disenchantment with the system, uh, and of course, resistance, and keeping people from revolting, right? So that's one of the purposes of them. Right. Um, It can also serve, these safety valves can also serve as a source of regime leg legitimacy, right? So if you deliver certain things that the people want, um, to an extent, you'll be able to attract support. Mm -hmm. uh, naturally, they also distract the population. So they distract them by placating them, right, from being more politically and civically engaged. Because these safety valves often revolve around delivering uh, certain pleasures or form of, forms of enjoyment, So an example of this might be delivering certain consumer goods or allowing people to see a foreign film. And here I'm talking about, you know, Western or Hollywood film, you know, films that might be racy in content or decadent or that, you know, would have been seen as unsocialist, um, but that were kind of accepted because they were safety valves, right? And this happened um, during the period of liberalization, but also into the 80s. 
um, as the state, um, you know, even allowed the, the screening of these foreign films, these like Hollywood films, right, um, in houses of culture and uh, certain uh, cinemas. And, um, you know, another example outside of the Romanian context of a safety valve would be uh, allowing uh, nude sunbathing uh, on the beaches of uh, East Germany, right? Um, so, you know, this was tolerated. Um, I think key here is that, um, you know, the regime could placate individuals. Um, and in a way, it's, I guess it's a type of a bread and circus, right? But in the socialist context. And one of uh, the women I interviewed put it really well. And she basically said, you know, basically the regime needed to give people air. Uh, otherwise they would suffocate because um, that they didn't have some, you know, sense of liberation, they would revolt, right? And I think... It's important to keep in mind that safety valves, though, are not just about allowing people to engage in pleasures, but um, uh, also maybe voice their opinion, right? So engaging in pleasures or blowing off steam, but also voicing their opinions uh, about certain things. So within reason, of course. So uh, if you look at the letters of complaint that people set into the Central Committee, um, or if you look at um, letters to the editor uh, in newspapers and magazines, these provided individuals with opportunities to air their grievances. Uh, and it gave them then an illusion that the state cared about their needs uh, and concerns. But I think what's the most important th thing to keep in mind here is at the end of the day, it's really, these safety valves are really an insidious way uh, of maintaining power and control because they give people an illusion um, of, you know, of maybe a snatch of freedom, right? These snatches of pleasure, this sense that the regime um, is listening to them, is concerned about their needs to an extent, uh, when this is really far from the case. I see. I was about to ask you about those letters of complaint that you keep mentioning, and I found that those must be really curious documents to look at. Um, so... Could you comment on them as means of um, means for people to express their discontent uh, about things like the forced gynecological exams at the workplace or the the same austerity measures that we have been discussing? And I was wondering also how safe was it to submit such letters? Um, I guess they were anonymous. Um, and um, who submitted them to who? Um, and also related to that, um, did Ceausescu and his uh, close associates fear public opinion at all? Sure. So um, the letters I read, as I noted, they're uh, housed at the Central Committee of the Romanian Communist Party in the archive there. Um, and that's where people, um, in some cases, sent them directly to the Central Committee. Uh, also, they sent them to municipal or regional authorities. and. Um, in addition to complaints, as I noted, uh, some of these letters were laudatory messages. They were thanking uh, Ceausescu for certain initiatives, praising certain policies, inviting him uh, to a child's baptism, for instance. Um, some of them were requests for improved housing uh, or for permission to travel abroad. Um, but there were many letters of complaint that I encountered, uh, many of them written in, in, in the 1980s, of course. We can't know how many letters were written because uh, obviously not all of them uh, were archived during the period and some got lost and 
post-1989 reshuffling of documents. Um, but, uh, you know, the letters of complaint that I came across were primarily anonymous, um, or they were signed uh, by uh, members of a work collective. So that's what, that might be the collective signature. Uh, or um, I, I encountered one that said collective of, was signed collective of working mothers. So something similarly vague. Um, so many of the letters of complaint were grievances. So grievances about a boss, about a local official, maybe even a colleague who was engaging in unsocialist practices. Uh, so theft or uh, illicit sale of state goods or sabotage. Um, although some of them also complained about conditions in the country. So the lack of food, uh, the heat and electricity shortages. And then, of course, one I mentioned um, also complained about uh, the forced gynecological exams. Um, people had to be very careful with these letters because, according to the penal code, it was illegal to criticize or threaten both the leadership and the socialist system. And so what would happen? Um, well, you could be interrogated by the Securitate or you could be sent to jail or prison uh, or to a psychiatric hospital, which increasingly happened in the 1980s. Um, many were quietly surveilled by the Securitate. Uh, I know of one person who used her actual name in criticizing the system without being jailed. And I referenced this letter in Chapter 6. It was one of the longest and most disparaging accounts of the regime that I found, that I encountered in those letters. Mm -hmm. And it was written in the early uh, 80s, or, in, or sorry, in early 1988 by a retired woman. And um, in it, she was actually not targeting uh, the Ceausescu's. They, she was targeting uh, mem officials in the Ministry of Justice. So, um, and actually she charges them with corruption, um, including extortion. And then she also charges uh, other officials uh, with plotting actually against uh, the Ceausescu's. Uh, so arguing that, you know, there are these people waiting in the wings, essentially, to bring him down and assume power and that he's being hoodwinked and fed misinformation about the state of the country. Um, and she beseeches him actually to take action before it's too late. And she also talks about the condition, obviously, of the country, uh, the lack of of food. And um, she identifies herself as a true believer who had made a host of sacrifices um, for her country um, and the system. Um, and I learned later, uh, after I did some research on it, that she was not arrested or jailed, um, but she was questioned uh, by the Securitate. But you know, she was an older woman at this point, so perhaps they didn't think she was that great of a threat. And also it was written in 1988, so. Yes, and also it was still um, supportive of Ceausescu, right? Even though it um, was so criticizing of other... Exactly. ...of other party members. Um, so I think we took a lot of your time with this interview already. Um, and maybe before we hang up, you could tell us more about uh, what you're currently working on. 
Um, I know you mentioned a little bit of it in the beginning, so maybe you can expand on that and uh, you can tell us uh, whether you plan to continue historicizing everyday life, which I find is really useful and um, a very interesting uh, reading as well. Um, so, yes. Yeah, so as I noted, I'm working on a, a book on Romania's engagement with the countries in the global south uh, during the Cold War. So I started this recently, and it will be my second monograph. But I'm also working on an edited volume on everyday life in post-socialist Eastern Europe. Mm -hmm. And this book uh, explores both the ruptures and continuities between the pre and post 1989 period. And it's really focused on people's everyday experiences uh, during the last 30 years. So looking at what I call real existing post-socialism. Yes, and this sounds really intriguing. And um, I'm looking forward to reading both your monograph and uh, the other book that you're participating in and maybe to discuss them with you in another interview um, in the future. So thank you so much for your for your time, uh, Dr. Massino, and I hope you have an inspiring semester this fall. And um, also to our listeners, uh, I hope they will read uh, Dr. Massino's book um, and um, um, we will meet in another episode. Thank you. Thank you, Marina, for taking the time to interview me.